billions of dollars flying out of Kabul. It's Friday, January 25th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. We'll hear why Kabul's economic bubble could soon burst. Also today marks two years since the start of Egypt's revolution. Back then, this Egyptian woman watched from the maternity ward. I actually thought, you know, why are these people wasting their time, you know, demonstrating or protesting? It's not like it's going to get them anywhere. Today, she joined thousands of people once again protesting in Tahrir Square. And later, a lobster fight in Canada. Two provinces battle over what size of lobster can be caught. Canadian fishermen are getting as little as $3 a pound for lobster. So fishermen on both sides of this are fighting to try and see how much of the catch they can hang on to. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Egypt today marked two years since the start of its revolution. Once again, thousands of anti-government protesters marched to Cairo's Tahrir Square, but this time they chanted against Egypt's new Islamist president, Mohamed Morsi, and demanded quicker democratic reform. Writer and activist Nala Samaha was among the protesters in Tahrir Square today. The fear was amazing. People from all walks of life. Young people, old people, a mix? Young people, old people, even some people brought their toddlers, senior citizens, rich, poor. What about the reaction from passersby who were not taking part in the demonstrations? As we walked through streets with residential buildings and all the residents were looking out their windows and balconies, we would chant up to them, inzil, inzil, which means come down, come mm. down, asking them to join as well. A lot of people in the balconies were f- waving flags, applauding us. So there was a general sense of support. Nala, two years ago, you were not protesting, but for an activist, you have a pretty good excuse. <laughs> two years ago, I was um, delivering my twins in a hospital here in Cairo. And I was watching on TV at the hospital and I had no idea what was going on. And I actually thought, you know, why are these people wasting their time, you know, demonstrating or protesting? It's not like it's going to get them anywhere. What was the turning point then for you? When did you get involved? All my friends were going to Tahrir during the core time of the revolution. It was everywhere on all the political talk shows, social media. So there was no way of avoiding it. And then... um, during last December's clashes at Hadeya, which is the presidential palace, right. we were actually watching it on live TV, watching the violence up close. That's when I decided to take to the streets. So how did it feel marching today? On a regular day walking down the street, I might be slightly on the defensive. I don't interact much with Egyptians on the street from, you know, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. There is a great divide between the social classes in Egypt, but a demonstration or a march brings together people from different social classes, eliminates all these differences and unites us all in one desire to live freely, democratically and not in fear. So Nala, your twin girls are turning two. When you look to their future in Egypt, what do you see? Unfortunately, I'm not too optimistic about the immediate future. They are my priority, and if they cannot get the kind of quality of life and safety and security and education that I would like them to get, 
here in Egypt, then we will most likely try to find a good life somewhere else. So if you do leave, what will you tell your daughters, say, in 20 years when they ask you why you didn't want to stay in your country of birth? What I will tell them is what my parents told me when at some point we left as well and I had moved to Canada as a young kid because I wanted to give you a better life. Whether it was the right or wrong decision, it was the best decision I could make. I really am hoping I don't have to leave because as much as things like, you know, education and healthcare are better in other parts of the world, there is nothing like being in your own home country, you know. Yeah, it may sound easy to say right now to them, but uh, those are really complex considerations. Definitely, especially coming from our culture, living somewhere else where you have to sort of reconcile two different cultures, one outside the house and one inside the house. It's difficult for a child growing up, having been through it myself. But this might be a choice my husband and I will have to make at some point. Nala, thank you very much for speaking with us. No problem, not at all. That was Egyptian activist Nala Samaha speaking to us from Cairo. You can see her video from today's demonstrations in Tahrir Square at theworld.org. Many young Egyptians like Nala were optimistic about their country's move to democracy, but they're realizing now how difficult that transition can be. Reporter Noel King in Cairo has a story of a young lawyer who went to work promoting democracy and found herself on trial. While making coffee for a visitor with her gleaming new espresso machine, 26-year-old Hafsa Halawa admits she's not your typical young Egyptian. She grew up in England and now lives back with her family in a wealthy gated community outside of Cairo. She wasn't in Egypt for the revolution. She was attending grad school in the UK. My revolution was on the phone with my parents here, freaking out about them and going to the British Embassy, the Egyptian Embassy in Britain. Armed with a newly minted law degree, Hafsa moved to Cairo a few months after the revolution, excited to help the fledgling democracy. She joined an American NGO called the National Democratic Institute, or NDI, helping Egyptian political parties prepare for the country's first free parliamentary elections in November 2011. Everyone actually needed help with the same problems because even the old guard, when it was disbanded, regrouping in a post-revolution Egypt, it's been proven that it's, it's a whole host of egos and lack of finance and lack of, you know, basic understanding. I always joke that this country's elites and its poor are politically illiterate. Because NDI was working with parties across the political spectrum, Hafsa didn't think her work was particularly controversial. But just after the elections, she found herself in the middle of a diplomatic firestorm. Egyptian security forces raided the offices of more than a dozen non-governmental organizations, including NDI. They seized equipment and accused employees of spying. At first, Hafsa says she didn't realize how serious the charges were until she found herself surrounded by security officers while at work. They started berating me and heckling me and screaming at me that I damaged this country, that I was helping the Jewish-Israeli spies, that I was a Zionist. The raid on the NGOs quickly became an international incident. Nineteen American citizens were charged. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton addressed the NGO crisis during a Senate hearing in February last year. We are engaged in very intensive uh, discussions uh, with the Egyptian government about finding a solution. We've had a lot of very tough conversations, um, and I think we're, uh, we're moving toward a resolution. Egyptian authorities agreed to let the Americans leave the country, but the Egyptians, including Hafsa, are still on trial. 
The charges are simple. Because the NGOs were not properly registered to work in Egypt, the employees were essentially receiving illegal funds in the form of their salaries. It sort of has bars and it's all mesh, 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 mesh. Hafsa and her co-defendants are confined to a cage each time they appear in court. So not only can you not hear because there are no microphones in court, you can't really see a lot either. You have to kind of have your face right up against the mess cage to, to see. To maintain her sense of humor, Hafsa tweets during the trial with the hashtag GrumpyDefendant. Egyptian political analyst Saeed Sadiq says that Hafsa's case is one illustration of the challenges facing post-revolution Egypt. The country is now a democracy, but authoritarian values have been ingrained after decades of dictatorship. The regime does not allow such people to be uh, challenging them or exposing the corruption and human rights violation. So they are always being besieged by laws, by police, uh, uh, system that even monitors uh, Facebook, uh, Skype, uh, Twitter. The NGO trial has been postponed until March. In the meantime, Hafsa is trying to move on with her life, but finding it difficult. I'm angry because I've spent the last 13, 14 months now unable to work. NGOs refuse to hire me because I am on trial. I've had five straight rejections from all kinds, private sector, um, law firms and from NGOs. Hafsa says she doesn't think the revolution has failed. She still has faith that Egyptians, particularly young people, will help shepherd their country toward democracy. She just hopes that the trial will finally end so she can get back to helping them. For The World, I'm Noelle King in Cairo. Last year on the first anniversary of Egypt's uprising, we featured music by Arab-American composer Mohamed Ferouz. It was called Tahrir for clarinet and orchestra, and it was inspired by the gathering of protesters in Tahrir Square. Ferouz has written another Tahrir-inspired composition, this one with a different tone. The world's Adeline Sear has an update. In Mohamed Ferouz's concerto, Tahrir for clarinet and orchestra, you can hear a sense of fiery rebellion and hope. But Fairuz said that hope also came with underlying anxiety. After hundreds of protesters were killed in Cairo in the 2011 uprising, Fairuz began writing music for the people who had lost their lives. There were very personal stories that were articulated in the square. I mean, people died, they gave up their lives. And there were tragic stories when the regime in Egypt, in its last breath of life, resorted to killing people. And these people are not just revolutionary icons. They're people's sons and daughters. They're people's mothers and fathers. So there were many intimate stories to be told. When he received a commission from violinist Rachel Barton Pine for a solo piece, he dedicated one movement of the suite to the victims. It's called For Egypt. He says it's an intimate letter to the men and women who fell in the uprising. It's a lamentation, and it runs the gamut emotionally between uh, loneliness, desperation, anxiety, despair, and even a certain amount of hope. But it is very definitely a piece that tries to move beyond treating these people as a cause and treats them as human beings. It looks 
slightly beyond the political and goes into the realm of the human. violin has this tremendous ability to imitate the human voice. You can almost imagine a mother or a father imploring their child not to go out into the square, saying you, you'll not be safe. Young people have the idealism to say, we want to change, we can't live in an unfree world forever, we have to change our society, and they go out and something horrible happens to them, as really did happen to so many young people, and old people, and people in the square, they were murdered. ends, it winds down, I think, into a place of serenity, into a place of, of acceptance, and to some degree, hopefulness that in the end, perhaps all of those people who gave up their lives did not do it for nothing. The thoughts of composer Mohamed Fairuz on Terror Square. For the world, this is Adeline Sia. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Despite a ceasefire announced last week, fighting continues in Myanmar between the army and rebels from the Kachin ethnic minority group. Now, the government of Myanmar, also known as Burma, has been slowly opening up to democratic reforms lately. But conflicts with ethnic minorities represent a major hurdle on that road to reform. Today, members of the Kachin community in Chiang Mai, Thailand, held a protest calling for an end to the violence. Chiang Mai is not far from the Burmese border. Reporter Bruce Wallace was there recently and talked to members of the Kachin community. They were getting ready for Christmas when I visited Wunpong Church on the outskirts of Chiang Mai last month. About 90 people gathered for a Kachin language service and a few seasonal songs. The Kachin are Christian, one source of tension with the country's Buddhist majority. Reverend Wuna Na Mai sees lessons for his congregation, most of whom are from Myanmar's Kachin state, in the Old Testament, 
we should come back to our land, like Israelite. <laughs> the Kachin and other ethnic minorities never got the autonomy they say they were promised in 1947, as the country prepared for independence from Britain. They've been fighting for it on and off ever since. The Kachin signed a ceasefire with the government in 1994. It held for 17 years. A year and a half ago, it broke down, sparked by disagreements over government-backed energy projects in Kachin State. Humanitarian groups say the fighting has driven as many as 100,000 people from their homes. Among them is Reverend Namai's father. He says Myanmar military forces invaded his village and burned down his church. The people who fled, a lot of them are old. They're glad they're alive, but they're also worried because everything they had is destroyed. Their farms, their livestock, everything. Fighting has continued since President Thane Sane called for a halt last week. In the past, similar announcements have had similar results. And Kachin distrust of the government runs deep. They say they got nothing in return for laying aside their weapons back in 94. La Ong is a member of the Kachin Independence Organization, or KIO, the rebel army's political wing. KIO has experience in the last 17 years of ceasefire period. Nothing, never talk about those political issues in those times. So what you had was basically the Kachin now saying, look, we tried the ceasefire, we didn't fight, and nothing changed for us. We still didn't get the rights that we wanted. So now, unless you give us political dialogue first before a ceasefire, then we're not going to stop fighting. Paul Keenan is the author of several books about Myanmar's armed ethnic groups. He says this time around, the Kachin want to see a plan for political concessions before they stop fighting. And they're not negotiating alone. Ethnic groups have formed a coalition to talk with Myanmar's government. Chief among their goals is more political power for Myanmar's seven ethnic states. They've moderated their aims since the 80s when the goal was independence. The Myanmar government, in turn, no longer balks at the suggestion of increased state autonomy. It's a completely different environment, I've been told, in relation to previous peace negotiations. Paul Keenan says that ethnic representatives tell him they're being listened to now, where before they were dictated to. Of course, as negotiations proceed, bullets still fly, both in Kachin State and in Shan State to the south. It illustrates what many say is a disconnect between the country's new reformist president and a hardline military. It is like having two governments in one country. Kun Sai is head of an ethnic news website and a longtime actor in ethnic issues. In the urban areas, it's the things in government. But in the rural areas, it's still the army, and you're still fighting. It is a different kind of struggle. In recent weeks, the U.S., British, and Chinese governments have expressed concern about the fighting, as has the United Nations. For the moment, though, lasting peace seems distant for the Kachin in their native Myanmar. And in Thailand, most among the congregation at Wumpong Church are staying put. For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace in Chiang Mai. Did you hear about the highly paid soccer player in England who kicked a ball boy during a game? There's a video making the rounds, and it's not a pretty sight. Well, the player has now been officially charged with violent conduct by the English Football Association and could face a lengthy suspension. That's not all there is to it, though. Okay, then. The world's William Troop is here to tell us more about this bizarre story. So, William, what exactly happened? Well, the game happened just a couple of days ago on Wednesday, and there were two teams playing in Wales, actually. Uh, one was a local Welsh team, Swansea. The other is uh, the English team, Chelsea, very highly paid bunch of players. Mm. 
And uh, Swansea was winning. And if the score stayed the way it was, uh, it was Swansea that's going to advance to uh, a final uh, League Cup game at Wembley Stadium. Very prestigious. And so time's running out. Chelsea needs to score. The ball goes out. And the ball boy gets it. And a ball boy, as we all know, is supposed to grab the ball, give it back to the player so they can get on with the business of playing. Well, this ball boy didn't do that. He fell on the ball. The Chelsea player, a Belgian guy named Edin Hazard, came and tried to get the ball. The ball boy just didn't move. And this frustrated player kind of, you know, gave it a little nudge, a little kick with his foot to the ball, which was under the ball boy, and got it loose. And he thought he was on his way. Well, it didn't end up that way. And uh, this is how the BBC commentary played it. The ball boy seems to have landed on the ball and, and Hazard is trying to get the ball off him and, well, the ball boy is now rolling around and we've got an incident here. Oh, it's a red card that's been produced and Hazard has been sent off. All right, a red card, that means the player who kicked the ball got ejected. Why did he do this? What's the, I mean, is it just frustration? Well, it was just trying to get the ball and trying to move on. And to be fair, I think, to this player, this ball boy really wasn't acting the way he's supposed to act. And uh, he was being a mischievous himself. Uh, and this, this player, uh, Eden Hazard, got very frustrated. And he apologized right after the game. And uh, we have tape of that, too. He was slow to give the ball back. I went to go and get the ball. I might have kicked the boy. I don't think I did. I apologized in the dressing room. After the game, he came to the changing rooms. He apologized, and I apologized. So there you have it. They both apologized. They both said they're sorry. Pretty much unanimous opinion around England is that they both were acting incorrectly. And a lot of people say that's where it should have ended. Mm, but actually, that's not where it's ended. It's gone viral. Everybody's saying a lot of people have seen this video now. And the, the player got an automatic three-game suspension, but English soccer officials want more. Yeah, I mean, they put out a statement today charging Eden Hazard with uh, violent conduct and saying that clearly the suspension that was called for automatically, the three-game suspension, would be insufficient. They're looking like they're going to hand him a much lengthier suspension. Which, you know, the debate is now on whether this incident really merited it. I mean, I, I've seen the video and it didn't look that bad. Why are they reacting so harshly, do you think? I think because there is really a debate throughout soccer, not just in England, about players diving, players saying bad things. In England, they've had several scandals involving racist uh, abuse between players and from stands to players. And it's just getting a bit out of hand. And I think this incident kind of just reinforces the, the notion that soccer in general is out of control. I mean, I think to be fair, you, you got to reprimand the ball boy as well. Yeah, I was going to say, it looks like uh, ball boys are now following uh, the bad examples of some players. The way he rolled around after uh, this little kick from this player, I mean, he, he must have learned that somewhere, and I think he learned it from the players on the field. <laughs> Worthy of an Academy Award nomination. The world's William Troop, thank you so much. You're welcome. So, was it a foul? You be the judge. We have the video at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, India's ongoing debate over sexual violence. Many Indian women complain they don't feel safe out in public, and some of the country's young men are trying to empathize. I can't imagine, you know, not being able to walk out late, you know, being uh, restricted so much, you know, as a person in a democratic nation like ours. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. India's president said today that it's time for the country to reset its moral compass. He was speaking about the gang rape and murder of a 23-year-old woman on a bus in New Delhi last month. Five men are now on trial in a special fast-track court in connection with the attack. A six is expected to be tried in juvenile court. News of the December attack ignited protests across the country demanding justice and reforms. Most of the original protesters were students, like the victim herself. The attack and the reaction to it have generated passionate discussions in India about the lack of safety for women and what to do about it. And it's not just women doing the talking. The world's Ritu Chatterjee spoke this week with some male college students in New Delhi who are also grappling with the issue. Dhruv Sirohi is 19, and he studies English literature at Delhi's Ramjos College. He says ever since the gang rape and the protests that followed, he and his friends have been having lots of conversations about sexual violence. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone has a view about it. And that, he says, is creating a new awareness among young men. Not just about sexual violence, but also subtler forms of harassment. It could be just messages, SMSs. So people are aware of everything, like even even how you talk to a woman. Another student, 18-year-old Rajat Philip of St. Stephen's College, says the past month has made him pick up on what women here face day in and day out. I grew up in a household. I have two brothers, so you know, sisters. So you're not exactly familiar with what all happens. It was new for me to hear about such things. You don't notice these things. It might be happening in front of your eyes, but you don't notice them. Like the unwanted attention, the lewd remarks, the groping on the streets and on public transport. Philip says he and his friends see what they didn't before. Now if you're walking to the, the metro station here, there are sometimes rowdy group of people who are just standing there catcalling to women going past. So now we notice it. And if we have female friends with us, we, we're more concerned about them. Concerned, but feeling somewhat helpless. We can't do a thing about it because that would mean getting into a fight about it. But yeah, I, I guess we, we notice it more. For me, it's almost overwhelming, you know, just to think about a situation like, you know, a, a woman's situation in the city. That's 18-year-old Kabir David from Ramjas College. Because, uh, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, not being able to walk out late, not, you know, being restricted so much, you know, as a person in, in a democratic nation like ours. David says he's seen men pester women with unwanted attention both on and off campus. And he says he's been taken aback by some of the comments he's heard from other male students. For example, one of his roommates, who's from a small town in the state of Punjab. His roommate was visiting David's hometown, and he called him to find out where he could buy a girl for the night. He asked me, Kabir, where will you get a girl? And I said, I haven't done that. You know, and he said, you, know, you, should, you should be knowing about this. David says he thinks men like his roommate have trouble seeing women as other than objects. And it may also have to do with young men coming from deeply conservative areas where women have very low status. It's a very different mentality and uh, you can't really come to a proper realisation as to why they are like that or understanding. David says the only way to ensure better treatment for India's women is through education. He suggests boys and girls should socialize more freely in schools. And they should openly discuss gender issues in schools and colleges. But when I ask him if he's done much of that lately, he says he's felt hesitant to broach the issue beyond his circle of friends. We don't talk much to our classmates, you know, who are from a, like a background that's different from ours. 
the conversation never goes to such a level where I can, you know, say, ask them about their views on, you know, girls and everything. And changing that, David thinks, might be a good place to start. For the world, I'm Ritu Chatterjee, New Delhi. Earlier this week, Ritu filed a story about a small taxi service in New Delhi where female drivers provide rides for women. Her story has generated more than 1,000 online comments. We thought we'd share some of them with you. One commenter wrote, I wish we had these in the U.S. I would definitely use them. Others pointed out that harassment of women is hardly a problem unique to India. I'm in Australia, one person wrote, and I would welcome a female-only service, despite how sad that is. It's reality. But others wondered if this kind of service is actually a form of discrimination against men. One commenter asked, if one out of 100 cab companies refused to take non-white passengers for the purpose of providing peace of mind to whites who were afraid of how non-whites would treat them, would that be a good thing? Switch race with gender? There is no substantial difference. And still others wrote in to tell us about other women-only taxi options available worldwide. London has a service, Lady Chauffeurs. Medellin in Colombia has something called Pink Taxis. Senegal and West Africa started Taxi Sisters. Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia launched a fleet of women-only taxis in 2011. And in Dubai, you can hail pink-topped women's taxis. You can find links to them at theworld.org. That's also where you can join in the global discussion. Weigh in at theworld.org slash worldgender. A new article in Harper's Magazine highlights some huge distortions in the economy of Kabul, Afghanistan. Scenes of crass, conspicuous consumption, highly inflated prices for land and goods, and unsustainable public services. A crash is inevitable, the article argues, probably as soon as the majority of foreign forces leave Afghanistan in 2014. Matthew Akins wrote the piece about Kabul's economic bubble, or as the title puts it, Kabubble. There was a World Bank report last year that called Afghanistan one of the most aid-dependent countries in the world, in history, really. So this is both military and development spending. Some of it is direct aid, and some of it is just the inevitable billions that surge into an economy when you have hundreds of thousands of foreign troops and contractors deployed there. So what happens when the international forces pull out as scheduled in 2014? Well, what the article tries to lay out is that it's almost like a law of gravity. What goes up must go down. And the sort of structural impact of this amount of money withdrawing from the country is guaranteed to have somewhat drastic effects. What I find really interesting in your uh, Harper's article is kind of where the money has gone to. And according to your report, there's a clear hierarchy of wealth these days in Kabul. Who's at the top and uh, what are the levels below it? Well, let's talk about the Afghans. You have the Afghan contractors and politicians and big businessmen who've had access to these million-dollar contracts, right? They're driving around in armored land cruisers with armed guards, and they're living in palatial so-called poppy palaces. Um, poppy you know, palaces tower because over... uh, allegedly the, those palaces have been built with opium proceeds? Right. The second largest source of the Afghan economy after international spending is the fact that it produces 90% of the world's opium. Mm. Who's below that level? So below that level, you have what is, I guess, in terms of the country as a whole, a very tiny group, but in a relative sense within Kabul, at least a sizable contingent of professionals, you know, who are making international salaries working for foreign NGOs or embassies. And they're actually going to be the ones who are going to be most drastically affected by this pullout because it's just not a reality that a country like Afghanistan, which has a per capita GDP of $150 a year, you're going to be able to find tons of jobs that pay 10000 or $5,000 a month. 
Now, you report that a lot of money is leaving the country. Uh, Tell us what you actually saw, and were these legal or illegal transfers of money? Well, one of the figures that's mentioned in the article is that, if I'm not mistaken, $4.5 billion of cash left the country during one year. And this was Recently legal. Recently a, a while ago? Yeah, I believe, it was two, I believe it was 2010. And that's legal money that was declared at the Kabul airport. Is the Afghan government doing anything to placate foreign donors uh, who might be upset by this reality? Yeah, there are, it's always a balancing act. They are, they are announcing various anti-corruption bodies and always sort of talking about how they're going to change things. But the reality is, is that it's not, the situation is not going to change until the money finally dries up. Now, there's one place anyway, uh, you report, where a lot of money does stay in Kabul, and that's at glitzy wedding receptions. This is, the, this is the way the Joneses in Kabul keep up with each other now? Yeah. Afghan culture isn't a very public one. You know, most of their life takes place, at least the family life, takes place inside the home. They don't go out to restaurants very often. There's certainly no nightclubs or, you know, um, it's a conservative culture. But the one occasion for really letting it all hang out are these giant wedding parties, which are sort of an occasion to display your social status and wealth, right? Mm. So this is in tandem with the bubble economy um, really gotten out of control to the point where people are dropping tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on these lavish wedding ceremonies and these sort of glittering, neon-lit, cavernous wedding halls have sprung up all over the city like mushrooms. Wow. And this is one of the images that I sort of juxtapose uh, in the article, you know, the parable of the wedding hall and the factory, right? The factories are sitting abandoned because the, you know, economic policies that have been pursued have allowed foreign countries to dump their goods in Afghanistan. There's been no support for manufacturing. Labor prices and land prices and input costs are just so high because of the aid boom. So none of the factories can operate. Uh, But as proof of, perverse proof of Afghan industriousness, you do have these massive wedding halls that are, of course, importing almost everything, even down to the cooking oil and, you know, rice that they use and will almost assuredly just vanish like mirages once the money finally dries up. Matthew Aikens reported the article Cub Bubble in the recent issue of Harper's. Thanks very much for speaking with us, Matthew. My pleasure, Marco. South American city we're looking for in today's GeoQuiz belongs to an elite class. It's one of the top four largest cities on the South American continent by population. Sao Paulo, Brazil is number one at around 11 million people. Bogota and Lima come in second and third. So which city ranks next in population? The number four cities nicknamed the Marvelous City. That it is, but not for those living in its poorest neighborhoods known as favelas. They have a reputation for being crowded and dangerous, but that may be changing. Favelas, in one way, is becoming a cool place, trendy. Uh, Now it's not uh, uncommon to hear about middle-class people organizing parties in rooftops in favelas where you can see amazing views because they are atop the mountains. We'll find out why the favelas are in when we return with the answer in a few minutes.
There's a battle going on between two provinces in Canada, and the claws are out. Lobster claws, that is. Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick are fighting over the size of lobsters that fishermen are allowed to catch. Andrea Crossan is our unofficial one-person Canada desk here at The World, and she's been looking into this lobster tale. All right, Andrea, enough bad puns. Can't two Canadian provinces just get along? What's the dispute? Well, you would think so, Marco, but these two provinces, the dispute is over a shared body of water that they have, and it's called the Northumberland Strait. And it's a prime location for lobster fishing. Now, New Brunswick wants to raise the minimum size of a lobster that they can catch. Prince Edward Island wants to keep the size limit as it is. And here's the thing. The difference that we're talking about right now, it would be 125th of an inch. One twenty-fifth of an inch, I can't even make my fingers go that small. Um, Why would that matter, that size? I know. It seems like nothing, Marco, but that's where it would start. Um, They would increase it by one twenty-fifth of an inch, and then eventually they want the minimum size of a lobster to be about one quarter of an inch larger than it is now. And, Marco, the bottom line is always the bottom line. It's about money, and it's about who's buying these lobsters. Prince Edward Island lobster fishermen sell smaller lobster. They're called canners, and they sell them to European and Asian markets, the kind of thing that you would find in a buffet on a cruise ship mm. or in a casino or someplace place like that, someplace where you're not going to have a big lobster tail on your plate. Now, for New Brunswick, they want the bigger lobster. They want to sell to chains like Red Lobster, where there's a minimum size requirement. And they say that they won't be able to catch the larger lobsters if Prince Edward Island catches them before they have a chance to grow. So I'm thinking of a lobster I might buy at the fish market I go to. What do they actually measure? I mean, where do they put the measuring tape? Is it tail to antenna? No, it's actually not about the tail at all. It's about the length of what is called the carapace. That's the exoskeleton shell that covers the head and the abdomen of a lobster. Got it. Um, so it needs to be slightly more than two and three-quarter inches in length. And if a fisherman catches, gets caught catching lobster smaller than that, then they get fined. With lobstermen, isn't bigger always better? I mean, don't the fishermen just make more off a larger lobster? Yes and no. There is actually something special about this body of water. These smaller lobsters are unique to the Northumberland Strait. The water is warmer there, and it causes the lobsters to mature more quickly than they do in the Atlantic. And PEI has developed an industry around selling these smaller lobsters. Now, I keep hearing, at least in the past couple of years, there have been tons of lobster in the Northeast. Aren't there enough lobsters to catch small ones and big ones? Well, that's part of the problem. There is plenty of lobster. In fact, there's too much. There's been a glut on the market, and just ask a fisherman in Maine about the state of the market there. The prices are at a 20-year low. Canadian fishermen are getting as little as $3 a pound for lobster. So fishermen on both sides of this are fighting to try and see how much of the catch they can hang on to. All right, my claws are back in. I think I got it. The world's Andrea Crossan. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. All eyes are on Brazil as it gears up to host the Soccer World Cup next year. One of the host cities, and the answer to our geo-quiz, is Rio de Janeiro. Most city maps of Rio make it easy to find your way to the tourist attractions like the famous statue of Christ the Redeemer or the iconic neighborhood of Ipanema. But it can be tricky navigating your way around the city's poorest neighborhoods called favelas. But that's starting to change. Marcelo Armstrong knows his way around Rio's favelas. He runs favela tours. Why do you give tours of favelas? I mean, these are notoriously poor and not terribly inviting neighborhoods where there's a lot of drug dealing going on. Yeah, look, this is what I do for 21 years. I try to to do it very well. 
to help people once they are in Rio to understand Rio better. The time I started to do this tour, most people would say to me that I was crazy. Imagine that tourists would be interested to go to favelas. Yesterday, on the first headline of the main newspaper of Rio, federal government wants to support tourism in the favelas. Mm. I would never imagine that in my life, mm. but it's happening. So, Marcelo, I've heard that some community organizers have actually begun to map the favelas, and it's not just maps. They've actually got to give names to streets that don't have names. It sounds like a full-time job. Recently, the, the government started a project named Favela Bairro, which is favela neighborhood, to transform favelas into more uh, like a neighborhood instead of a favela. Well, the sense of bringing more services. One of the benefits has been the, the addresses. So the address is meaning first that people receive mail at home before they would receive mail in a place where the, the alleyway would uh, border the road nearby. Okay, that would be a house where all the letters, the mail would be dropped. But secondly, and more important, is that having addresses, people can have access to credits in town. So it's much better because they can buy things, they have an official address, so they can be found. Before wow. they had no addresses, they cannot be found, no credits for them. Do you think that's ultimately going to make a difference in the quality of life in the favelas? This is part of a process, not only about the maps, uh, but infrastructure generally, better electricity system or garbage collection or security also mainly more present in favelas, especially in the favelas that were pacified by the police. And after the favela is safe, drug dealing has dropped a lot. Uh, services they have more tendency to get in and to be extensive for the people inside the favelas. Before, companies would be more afraid to get in and offer services that now are being more popular there. So all these improvements in the favelas, could it ultimately have the effect of gentrifying them to such a degree that it would take away this inexpensive and centrally located housing stock? The views are beautiful from the favelas. Well, not all, but many have amazing views because they are atop the mountains. Rio is one of the few places in the world where the rich people live below and poor people live above because mm. the favelas have been constructed in areas that were public areas. So they took over the place, they stayed there, and some do have amazing views overviewing Rio de Janeiro down there. Now, what we are happening, which is unusual and unexpected years ago, is that there are more and more foreign people coming to live in favelas, buying properties in favelas, overviewing Copacabana or Ipanema, for example, so causing some inflation within the favelas. Why do you think this is happening now? Does it have anything to do with the World Cup next year or the Olympics in 2016? Favelas, in one way, is becoming a cool place. Trendy. They can be nice in one way. Uh, now it's not uh, uncommon to hear about middle class people organizing parties in rooftops in favelas where you can see Rio de Janeiro down there. Mm. In New Year's, there were quite many people organizing parties in favelas. So it's like cool to be in the favela. We have to remember also that samba is from there, funk music comes from there. So culturally, it's somehow attracting people too. But still, there are many problems to be solved. It's not an easy place to live. So no matter it's becoming cool, it still is a place uh, that, socially speaking, the conditions are not easy. But they are better than, than before. Marcelo Armstrong runs Favela Tours in Rio de Janeiro. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. We've got pictures of Marcelo's favela walking tour, plus a slideshow on efforts to increase security in Rio's favelas. That's at theworld.org. We stay in Brazil for an update on a Brazilian musician whose renown goes back to the early popularity of samba and bossa nova. 
singer, pianist, and band leader Tanya Maria. Her voice was placed on a pedestal by Charlie Bird, the late American guitarist who was key in hipping this country to Brazilian music. Tanya Maria fronted her first band when she was only 13. Now at 64, Tanya Maria is still going strong, releasing her 25th album recently. During her younger years, Tanya Maria resisted becoming a full-time musician. She earned a law degree and thought that would be her life. But her passion for music drove her to the nightclubs of Rio and Sao Paulo. Practice makes perfect, and she started getting noticed. Brazilian fame eventually led Tanya Maria to Paris and New York. Her sultry voice and intimate touches on the piano were better suited for the jazz clubs, apparently, rather than the courtroom. Here's Tanya Maria performing the title track to her latest album, Canto. Com a mala dos sonhos pensei que tivesse tudo Para poder crescer Crescer na cabeça, mas com o coração Enfrentar a vida sem perder a razão Ter a força de espírito pra poder dizer In the past, Tanya Maria has been a favorite at major jazz festivals around the world. This new CD shows why and will undoubtedly land her more gigs. It'll also remind audiences that Tanya Maria remains a musical force with no sign of fatigue. We'll close with one more taste from the album, a tune called Chorinho Brasileiro. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. The executive producer of The World is Andrew Sussman. The World is produced by Jeb Sharp with Andrea Crossan, Joyce Hackle, Carol Hills, David Lavalle, April Peavy, Nina Porzuki, and Tracy Tong. Anne Lopez is our director. Our editors are Jennifer Gorin, Aaron Schachter, David Barron, and Peter Thompson. William Troop is senior editor, Chris Wolf, news editor. Our managing editor is Jonathan Dyer. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. I tweet at Marco Werman, and you can always find us online at theworld.org. Have a great weekend.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International